0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today we are thrilled to feature Andrew Methven, the author of the Slow Chinese newsletter to the show. Andrew's journey from a planetary science graduate to a Chinese language enthusiast is as fascinating as it is unconventional. In our conversation today, Andrew shares his unconventional journey to learning Chinese, starting with a spontaneous trip to China in 2002. He discusses the challenges of learning Chinese, including the lack of resources and opportunities in the UK and other Western countries. Andrew also emphasizes the importance of understanding the cultural context and history behind the language. He shares how his newsletter aims to provide this context by linking language learning to current events and social trends in China. The episode also touches on the creative cultural references and memes that emerged during Halloween celebrations in China. Enjoy
1: you know, the reality is, is that China is this huge and difficult topic. You need people to learn the language and about the country over like many years to have any chance of really understanding it and then how to deal with it. So I I think the issue in the UK is probably more, uh, I don't think we do a great job of promoting and explaining why learning about China and learning Chinese is important. And therefore... My opinion is that it's probably quite under-resourced in this country too. So rather than looking at the quality of of teaching, and I'm sure there's lots of great teachers in this country, I think it's probably more a resourcing issue, which means that it's quite limited and amazingly still quite niche for such a big country
0: My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Andrew, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. Great to be
0: here. All right, Andrew, where are we recording you from today?
1: So I'm over in the UK, near to London. Near to London. Whereabouts is that? Yeah, so I used to live in London, but I've moved out um, just outside near to Windsor. So kind of just west of London.
0: Well, let's start off by having you give us an introduction to your personal story and your career and how your life and your work came to be focused on China.
1: Sure. So I um, I first went to China pretty much by accident back in 2002. So I'd been to university in the UK. I'd done a degree in something called planetary science, uh, which... Uh, I only just graduated. I realized it wasn't for me. And what I also realized was that there wasn't really any career in um, space exploration for someone like me that actually was terrible at math. So I I decided not to pursue that as a career. Um, I worked in London for a a couple of years to save enough money to go traveling. And I went, uh, well, I traveled by train from London uh, through Europe and then eventually into China through Russia and Mongolia. And the plan was to carry on going to Australia. My original plan was to get to Australia uh, overland, so without taking a plane. And I was planning to spend maybe three months in China. And in the end, I spent nearly a year and I hitched around the country. I, I took trains to really distant places, mostly in the West. And then I would spend a month or two hitchhiking to somewhere else. Uh, and then I would you know go kind of go back up or out into the west and then do another big tour like that and so I spent about a year doing that. Can I ask what year that was two thousand and two two thousand and three okay yeah there was there was no plan whatsoever to get there in the first place, but I ended up being there i mean before I went i it was literally putting a pin in a map uh in my you know, where, where I was living in London at the time. And I thought, I just want to go there because I don't know anyone else that's been. Uh, so I, I yeah, I turned up there. I spent a lot longer than planned. And then after I left China, I did try and get to Australia and I did in the end, but I, I did have to take a plane in the end. I can't remember where I flew from, but the last bit was a, was a flight into Australia. Uh, stayed there for a couple of months. Uh, got really bored, actually. Um, just because I, I, you know, when you're in China for that long, it's just so intense and kind of dynamic. And, uh, you know, I just found everywhere else a little bit boring after that. So I spent a, f- a few months in Australia working and then got a job teaching English in, t- in, uh, in Taiwan. So I was, I based in a small town in the middle of Taiwan for probably about a year, a place called Huawei, Tiger's tail. Um, and then, yeah, I lived there for a little bit. And through the whole process, I was just kind of learning Chinese through osmosis, you know, traveling on the mainland. I had to learn the basics to get around. Uh, thought I was really good because uh, learning Chinese is uh, deceptive in that you f- you don't have to say much to feel like you sound really good because the expectations are so low uh, for a foreigner, certainly at that time, to speak any Chinese. And then also it's deceptive because you can actually do a lot with a very small amount of language. So um, within a year, I felt like I was pretty good. Of course, looking back, I was, my, my language skills were terrible, but uh, I uh, I just kind of got, I suppose you would say, I just got the bug, so carried on doing it. And then uh, first time in, in Taiwan, I, I taught English and then continued to learn the language. Uh, then came back to the UK and then in the end, went back out to Taiwan again to live in Tainan. And I did, a, I think around two and a half three years there uh but that time i really focused on doing the language so i, I did like um a couple of years really intensive language study at Chengda, uh, which is the main university in tainan that uh, I, th- I think it's still there so it was like a language school linked to the university so i just went back uh i funded self-funded through uh, teaching english Uh, And then just really went all in on the language. Came back to the UK, then took a master's in Chinese translation and linguistics. Uh, And then I've since then, two thousand six seven, been based in London. uh, Had a career in business linked to China, UK, Um, and then you know I've basically been here since then, back and forth to the mainland a lot over that time, but mostly short visits um and then during during the pandemic um obviously i couldn't travel and i was getting really annoyed that my language skills were just getting worse and worse by the day and so i started the newsletter slow chinese and it was really just a, a way for me to practice uh and kind of keep my language skills going and the, the 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 aim was really simple my aim was to read one long form news article a day in chinese So I did that. I started that earlier in the pandemic around October, 2020. And I just realized that every time I read an article, there was always a handful of, well, more than a handful often, but, you know, things that I didn't know, like idioms and colloquialisms, but more often kind of new language like internet slang or puns or, you know, very new language. And so by Feb 2021, uh, I just decided to start publishing what I learned. And so I started on Substack. Uh, it was that, I think it was the 8th of February, 2021. And then since then, I've published every Saturday, published a newsletter every Saturday, uh, where I, I pick a news story. that I try and capture something that people are actually talking about in China. Obviously, at the time... Uh, because I wanted to feel like I was still connected and kind of know what was happening. So I'd try and find something that I know people are talking about. And then I, then I read into it, read as much as I can, and then pick out the interesting words and phrases that you probably wouldn't find in a textbook. Um, often they're new to me as well. And then I just kind of package it into like a, a newsletter format. And I mean, that, that is basically the format of the newsletter.
0: So first question, do you have a fear of flying?
1: Uh, I used to, but now no. Uh, I'm cool. I'm fine with flying.
0: Was that kind of? I, I'm curious about always, you know, wanting to get to Australia overland. It's either out of a fear or out of uh, just uh, wanting to do it a different way, uh, a unique way.
1: Yeah, probably back then it was a mix of both. So I was never that keen on flying, but it was more about the adventure of just doing something that seemed completely mad. And, uh, you know, like uh, just, just an adventure and, and, and an exploration. And it was really cool. I would love to do it again.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you miss so much, you know, zooming around in a tin can above everything, whereas traveling by train or bus or what have you, it's, that's the experience. Yeah. You really see what you're going through or past.
1: Yeah. And especially in China. So when I, I still remember when I first arrived in Beijing, so I took a train from, um, Mongolia into Beijing and it was, I think it was around February. So really cold and gray, and it just seemed so intimidating and unfriendly, you know, and it completely different to what I'd expected. Um, and then I found it just took it took months for me to really start to break through the surface of what China is really like, and that was through traveling to these really remote places. Um, that you gradually get a feel for what people are like, and I actually found that actually starting to learn the language. That's when I that's when I began to start to uncover what what China was all about, and I still think that actually everything you need to know about China uh, is is hidden somewhere in the language just because it's so deep and there's so much uh you know thousands of years literally of kind of history and stories and culture and stuff that yeah um obviously you can learn all that without knowing the language but knowing the language i think is really for me anyway it's been uh, this way to unlock the a, a lot of you know kind of interesting stuff about china that i don't think i would have learned about if i hadn't been doing the language
0: yeah, I've actually heard that a lot. I don't think it, the same can be said for other languages as much as it can for for China. And maybe it's just the, the poetic nature of how they speak. If you ask a direct question, you might get a, well, when the bird flies through the tree, and over the <laughs> branch, it sometimes lays <laughs> an egg in a bush. And you're like... Okay, thank you. Uh, I'll I'll try to figure out what that meant. Um, but you know, this is just kind of the evolution of, of how how, uh, how how the language goes. I'm sorry, that's kind of cheeky uh, to say. <laughs> uh, it's kind of true too. Okay, yeah, and then obviously, I mean, I, I and the the life lesson of just like. You know, throw a dart at a map and go. If you're a young person wanting to figure out your life, you don't have to know where. You just have to go somewhere, put one foot in front of the other, and just do. Mike Tyson said, "Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face," and so <laughs> you just kind of have to go and just end up uh, somewhere as you did. And you know, here we are.
1: I had no, ex- I had no expectation that it would end. It would end up. At- Determining the direction of you know you know probably the rest of my life certainly the last twenty years or so so um, yeah there was definitely no plan I kind of looking back I wish I'd had a bit more of a plan actually um, but you know that's just that's just the way it is um, but then it's you know this kind of feeling of exploration so at the time I was exploring physically in the country uh, whereas now I do that. Um, literally sitting in my home office stroke shed and I get the same feeling from the language. So it's, it's still a kind of exploration for me, sort of for me. So it's um, yeah, I, it's I mean, a bit geeky, but uh, I, I still love doing it.
0: Well, you didn't get to explore space, but you did get to explore something that maybe is as interesting or unique or unknown. Hence the premise of this podcast, you know, and why we exist is uh, and why we have so many people that pay attention to what we do here is because it is so difficult to understand. So let's dive in and let's talk about language and let's talk about Mandarin and all things involved with that. Uh, First question, though, is is the the newsletter and I, I, we got a good genesis of where the newsletter came from. So um, I'll just kind of jump to asking you, is it a side project? Has it evolved into a business? Is this uh, now something you're doing more than just Saturdays?
1: Yeah. So I still only publish on, on, on Saturdays. So And um, yeah, it's somewhere between a side project and a business. So I, I, have a very, I actually have a very busy working life and career that's also very much linked to China. Um, so I do this in the evenings and on the weekends still. Uh, but yeah, it's, there is, I launched a paid offering kind of like a membership subscription product in 2000, in 2022. So like nearly two years now. Um, yeah. And it's, so it's a small, but growing, um, side project business, I guess is the best way you could put it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very much a passion project still.
0: What is the state of Mandarin language education in the UK?
1: I should caveat my comments with, uh, the, the important point, which is, so my path in learning Chinese is completely unconventional. So mostly self-taught, um, uh, you know, self-driven. So even when I had a teacher, I found I had a great teacher in, in Taiwan. So I did mostly one-on-one lessons, um, in very intensely, particularly over like a one and a half, two year period. Um, and I you know, I consumed a whole load of different content, textbooks, uh, short stories, San Wen, uh, you know, uh, news articles, uh, radio shows, TV shows. Um, but I never did like a structured degree course or anything like that. So it's quite hard for me to therefore look here at how Chinese is taught in the UK because I've actually had no direct experience of that. Uh, but what I can say is, it seems to be uh, falling in popularity in terms of a degree that you know young people would do today. Uh, and I read one thing recently, ish, I think this summer. Um, you know, the, the the data suggests that between 20, 2012 and now, basically, the number of people taking Chinese studies or and Mandarin is is fallen 30, more than thirty percent. And so I, I think that. The big problem is the level of interest. Um, so I think that that's part of it. In terms of how it's taught, it's really hard for me to comment. I, I think it's more how is it being? How are people being informed that it's a worthwhile thing to study? Um, and I think in that regard, I don't think we do a great job in the UK of explaining why it's important to learn about China and also why it's important to learn Chinese. Um, the other problem is that because China so distant, it's not like, you know, as we, uh, when we're growing up in the UK, generally you'll learn French. And there's an obvious reason why you would learn French because it, France is just next door. And it's also quite accessible too. Whereas learning Chinese, so my, my kids are now at an age where I want them to learn Chinese. And even me, I'm finding it quite hard to uh, create the kind of environment that they would think that that was something worth doing, you know, because China is so far away. And my experience of learning the language is all about context and being in the environment. Um, and so, you know, it is really hard for, for, I think, any country, you know, European or Western country to explain to people why it's important. But of course it is, uh, because, you know, the reality is, is that um, China is this uh, huge and difficult uh, kind of topic that is, you know, you need people to learn the language and about the country over like many years to have any, any, any chance of really understanding it and then how to deal with it. So I, I think the issue in the UK is probably more, uh, I don't think we do a great job of promoting and explaining why learning about China and learning Chinese is important. Uh, and therefore, my, my um, uh, opinion is that it's probably quite under-resourced in this country too. So rather than looking at the quality of, of teaching, and I'm sure there's lots of great teachers in this country, I think it's probably more uh, a resourcing issue, which means that it's you know it's it's quite limited, and and you know amazingly still quite niche uh, for such a big country. You know,
0: I, I think I think that's very astute to call out the potential bigger issues. It's it's like we it would be a luxury to be in a position where we were analyzing quality or the curriculum. Versus we have to start with zooming out and creating incentive and understanding of why it's important and putting that in front of young people as a career path or an opportunity. And then as you correctly put forth, it's unless you're heavily involved in a local Chinese community, or of course, if you live in China you you spend a lot of work on something without really being able to realize the results until you're of an age to potentially go there. Right. It's 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 you know, at the back of your mind, especially, you know, as as children are wont to do, why am I bothering? Why am I doing this? What's the value? What am I getting out of this? And and to teach young people about the the value of how this is going to help them be successful later in life. Well, later in life to them is next year. It's you know it's or or how the, is this going to help me be more popular at school next year So, You know, I mean, it's such a short time frame. So yeah, I mean, it is really really difficult. I know, like my wife is from Russia and we met in China in Dalian in two thousand seven, and now we are living here in Canada, but. We are involved in the Russian community that is here and they speak to Babushka and, you know, and grandpa and whatnot in, in Russia on, on calls and, and FaceTime and, and whatnot. Actually, we use WeChat, funny enough. <laughs> and so we do video calls, uh, with them. And, and so they are using it and they do understand. And my wife talks to them in Russian at home quite a bit. Uh, so, so we're, we're, we're we went that route, but. I totally understand what you're saying and that's just a very very good point.
1: Yeah, I think Todd just a, just another point there. I mean something else that I that I uh, have observed is you know th- there's a lot of people in the, in the UK certainly in London that have spent quite a few years in China and then they've come back. <clears throat> you know, through the pandemic there was there were lots of people that <clears throat> either came back during or after that. And there's also a lot of people that have studied Chinese at university here that um you know when it was growing in pop- popularity, but uh, there's there are so few opportunities to then use it uh, in a career context. So the, there are it's it, it's again it's really surprising the the lack of opportunities that people have that have a China background or expertise or experience when they come back into the UK. There's very little in terms of opportunities to actually use it in a in a in a kind of career. Growth context. Um, so we, you know, we've been re- recently, as links to the newsletter, been organising these um, China Watcher events, and you know, they're really popular because uh, there is so many people here that still want to maintain that connection with China, even though they're not there, and you know, they want to keep their language skills going, and there just aren't the opportunities to use it uh, as part of their job. You know, so I think that's also the problem that we're not really set up for there to be. Uh, you know, huge. You know, lots of opportunities for a, a career linked to China or perhaps even Asia based in the UK. You have to really be in the region.
0: What about outside the UK? And I'll ask you if you're at all familiar. I don't want to ask a question of something that you may not know about. But are you at all familiar or knowledgeable about Mandarin language learning in other Western countries and how it might be going maybe better or Hopefully, not worse in other Western countries compared to the UK.
1: Yeah, so I, I don't. Uh, again, in terms of formal education or structured education, I probably know even less about what what's happening in other countries than I do in the UK. I mean, my impression is that there's probably more funding in places like Germany and the US than than there is in the UK. But I mean, the way I've learned the language in the first place is very much self-taught, and that's because. Um, whenever I tried to use more formal language learning resources, textbooks and what have you, I just found them so boring um, and really limited. And also when you're learning Chinese, and I don't know if this is the same for other languages, but there's a huge gap between getting to what you would call an advanced level. So like HSK six or, you know, whatever the most advanced textbook is, you know, you get to that level and you're pretty good, but, to then be able to use it in a real live setting uh, you know in a in a kind of working context or a negotiation context or, or reading a full news article and just doing that in Chinese there's a huge gap And so that's actually the problem that I try to solve in a small way with the newsletter which is trying to bridge that gap between you know educationally quite good or advanced as you would call it and then actually being able to operate Properly and, and effectively in the language, so I, I think, um, yeah, just as a general, as a general comment, I just find this, the 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 kind of structured language learning resources and tools that I've used or I've had contact with that uh, that are available are just really limited, and that's not necessarily because they're bad. It's just that Chinese is a new, uniquely hard language to learn, and. You know, the language itself, so you could get really good and sound great in lang- in the language itself. You know, you come across these people on YouTube who've done it in like six months and they're, you know, they speak fantastic Chinese. But you need to spend the next twenty years learning about China to then have the depth to understand the meaning behind a lot of the stuff that you're saying. You know, like what does an idiom actually mean? Where? It, why is that? Why is that colloquial phrase important? You know, what is what? What what's the uh, what's the path of this particular idiom? And so it's just these nuances that you 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 know. The, there's just no way you can teach that. It has to be done through experience and you know slow, painful kind of absorption of of this kind of context and and the kind of you know the the, the stuff around the language that feeds into it. But it's not just the language, you know?
0: Or even the connotation. Like when you say that, it, I, I'm like, I wonder if somebody is saying that in a good way or a bad way.
1: Well, this is, again, part of the the challenge with Chinese because you have often the difference between a word or a difference between two words uh, or phrases is purely, is that a negative or a positive? And sometimes it changes. And you don't know that until you make a mistake and you say the right, you say what you think is the right word, but it's a bad. It's like a negative uh, when it should be a positive, you know. So, because um, as, as you know, the language itself it doesn't have tense really. Uh, you know, there are lots and lots. I mean, the big challenge is the volume of stuff you have to learn, and the you know, there's no there's no um, kind of gendered related stuff either. Uh, And so this is why it's deceptively easy to begin with, but then you go deeper and you realize it's really hard because of these very delicate or subtle differences in something is, you know, is that a, am I paying a compliment there or am I being really offensive? You know, it could literally be the difference of a a single character.
0: Well, even just like understand that I'm thinking of a particular instance that happened to me. So back in 2011, I, I met this guy. He was a professional golfer from the UK and he had been brought out because in Dalian, they were building new golf course. And in real estate development in China, they used to create an attraction and in order to improve the land value. And then they would build real estate around that. So they would build the golf course, sell memberships to the golf course, super high end. And they had like Lee Westwood and Rory McIlroy come out and play and do this big promo, kind of play play the course. And of course, then they were really selling the real estate, kind of pre-selling the land around the golf course, because it was a fair distance outside of town. And, and that was, uh, it was, I saw this play out numerous times. So, so I was actually helping to sell memberships. And these were probably, you know, 150,000 quid, 150,000 US dollar memberships, right? Very expensive, very prestigious. And I was... Kind of chasing this one potential client and she owned a, a range of, of Chinese kind of furniture sh- uh, shops and things and, and we've spent a lot of time we went to the driving range and practice and I gave her some lessons and things and, and I spent months cultivating this relationship and I, I kind of put it like I like okay are we, are we ready to buy are we gonna get this and, and she was just like, listen, let's go for dinner. I really like you let me explain something to you And we got to dinner she said, listen, I've been telling you yes and that I would for months but I'm not going to, and you don't seem to understand that. And I'm like, well, yeah, because you keep telling me, yes, you're going to buy. And she's like, yes, but I'm only doing that to give you face. Right. I I just, I don't want to disrespect you and I don't want to make you sad. I don't want to make you upset. So I'll just keep saying yes, but you don't seem to understand that's never going to happen. And so I was caught in this, this multi-universe, multiverse position in my head (laughs) of like what parallel you know, am I in right now? This is crazy. So, you know, kind of learn the hard way, but that is, again, there's language and there's what's being said. And then there's what's being meant. And they're so often very different.
1: And in that, that context, obviously you were, you were, she was, uh, giving you a no, yes. a yes, that means no, but you just obviously heard the yes, right? So, Mm uh, is it a yes, yes, or a no, yes, or a yes, no, you gotta, you need to uh but you can it is decipherable you know you just have to you, normally just through that that long process of learning through experience that you gradually get to learn what what is a yes yes and what's a no yes
0: what have you learned from your subscriber base and those that follow you as far as who they are what their goals are and what their what their aim is for paying attention to what you're producing. Uh, is it language-based or is it other? I just wanted to hear a little bit more about what you potentially have understood from who your subscriber base is and, and why they're subscribing.
1: It sits at the newsletter and the content sit at the intersection between what's happening in China. So news, although it's definitely not journalism, it's it's observations and language learning. <laughs> And so what people are looking for, and generally I would say, I would say the majority of the audience is outside of China, so they're looking to keep up to date with what's going on in, in China and what people are talking about, um, and then keeping up to date with, with language. So you know, especially during the pandemic when you literally couldn't go to China, um, the amount of new language that was around. Uh, that were you know uh, started in on social media, let's say, or it's like a certain meme that becomes very popular, or even like a, a big social trend. You know, like uh, the, the, obviously the the, the more um, well known ones are like tamping and uh, Nadia and things like that, that all of which came came out around. Well, Nadrian was a little bit earlier than that, but you know these kind of social trends that are reflected in the language that people are using. So I think it's a, it's a combination of following what's happening in China and then learning about the language that people are using to stay up to date and to stay current and on trend.
0: I'm wondering what... You explained this already a little bit, so I'm going to ask maybe to just go deeper. The unique value that the newsletter is adding to those that are trying to learn... Mandarin. And when I say learn Mandarin, that's not even just about speaking it or reading it. It is understanding it at the depths, like we did, the historical pathways to how certain phrases came to exist. We know that one of the biggest complaints is that the textbooks just simply don't reflect colloquial spoken Chinese, right? So I thought maybe I'd, I'd ask you to just dive into the unique value that your newsletter is providing.
1: I would, I would start the answer to that question by saying that all the way from the start really the uh the target reader is actually me so uh to to determine the uh, the unique value i don't i probably wouldn't want to go that far but i think what it tries to do uh which i think is unique is um it, it just tries to get under the skin of um what the language really means Uh, but linking it to what's happening. So I think context is so important when you're learning Chinese. And so and it's also, I mean, it's a really crucial part of language learning anyway, linking linking the thing that you're learning uh, in terms of, you know, it's like a a language is a concept. So a word is just a a thing that exists in your mind. Uh, But then if you really want to learn that, you have to connect it to different types of context. So um, I think at the the center of it is context-based learning, like the philosophy of of what it is and how it does it. Um, And then, yeah, in terms of what's unique about it, it's it's really just trying to find – it's this mix of new language and things that are literally coming uh, into existence as events happen in China. Um, And then also – trying to understand at a deeper level the kind of language that people are using and why. So, for example, um, the thing we wrote about last week uh, was um, about a couple in Zhengzhou, a young couple called Li Jun and Liang Liang, uh, who'd bought an off-plan property, so one that wasn't yet built, uh, in Zhengzhou in this new development, and the, the developer ran out of money and the building work stopped. And so three years later, uh, it's called a lanwei loll. so kind of basically a building that's not being completed uh, because it's the, the the developers run out of money. And one way in which these people, in, in which the couple were described, in fact, how they described themselves uh, on social media was Lotto Xiangze, which is a book by Lao She uh, called uh, The Rickshaw Boy. And it is you know, you need to know that, you need to know who, who Lasha is, what that book's about, and also what it means in order to understand why they were describing themselves as the rickshaw boy. And of course, what it means is kind of the, the basically the downtrodden, poor end of society that has no chance of, of escaping, you know, being in that lower level of society. So that's, you know, something like that. You need to know the historical reference. You need to know the literary reference. And then you need to understand about what's happening in China right now uh, that then leads to people making that link to a novel that's, you know, like nearly 100 years old. So it's, it's that kind of thing. So it's linking what's happening now – with language learning, and then plugging in various levels of context, both in terms of events that are happening, historical references, cultural references. So it's all, it's a mix really. Um, But yeah, it's, it, the, it's just, I just try to make it interesting and engaging, Um, uh, you know, trying to explain something that's happening. An ideal story for me is something that um, kind of highlights a bigger trend uh, so the, you know, the, 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 couple in Zhengzhou was a good one because, well, it was a bad one for them, obviously, cause it was a terrible situation. But, uh, in terms of what I'm looking to do, it was a great story because it links in a much bigger trend and problem in Chinese society, you know, uh, where people, uh, who are kind of young families, they literally can't afford to buy a home. And then when they do afford to buy a home, it's not even built yet. Uh, and then they've got no kind of safety net to to, to help or to kind of help them solve. So in this case, they resorted to social media. Um, yeah. So it's it's this intersection of social trends, real kind of real-time events and language learning and trying to mix it all together.
0: You could eventually go back into 5,000 years of history and in co- in context and whatnot, but why not just stay up to date and kind of in the recent news to help people be able to speak? I mean, and that's what the Chinese will, you know, casually converse about most often is what's going on now. So help people understand how to speak and say the words and the phrases and and, and speak about the current events um, yeah. is going to be the most usable in the shortest amount of time for them, which is a mm. great place to start to keep your interest high and your success, at least at a, at a level that makes you want to continue. So, yeah, uh, I think that's smart. I think that's smart. I have to ask. And my my Chinese What a Jong Fei Shang Buhao. But Jiao. Yeah. <laughs> That's
1: cow. Um so Lao is that not teacher? Lao not Lao Yeah. Lao is an author. Lao is a teacher. Completely. A third different. Tone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a different word as well. A different character. Yeah. Yeah, it, well of course, yeah. Yeah. So I, again, that's something else that is just uh, is virtually impossible, and you can only really do it through intensive drilling to really get the pronunciation and you know the characters, the characters right. But it's again that is a massive barrier to entry.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, talk about the tones. I mean, that to me is <laughs> I never even knew anything about tones before I got there, and then that. It was a big stumbling block for me. Talk about what the tones mean. What are tones?
1: Again, when I, because I because of my journey in learning Chinese, I didn't even bother thinking about tones. As you were saying, you know, for the first two years, um, you know, if I was to, if I were to do it again, I would start with the tones actually because it's it's a really crucial part. Um, and so you, you know, there are four main tones, and then there's a fifth one which is a a neutral tone. Uh, so kind of flat. Uh, the 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 flat going up, going down then up and then going down basically, uh, and so you can have a the, a character a a character or a unit of of meaning that can mean comp- something completely different depending on the tone uh, it, that is used uh, and often the, in in formal learning it's ma 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 that you use to begin with. Uh, so ma is the particle at the end of a question. Ma, uh, I think, I'm just trying to think, I think you could say, I, again, I get confused with the tones, but ma, I think you could mean numb. Ma, no, I actually can't remember what what, what a, second, a second tone ma would mean.
0: Well, you have mother, horse, yeah.
1: cloth. Ma is third one. tone. I think ma, horse is third tone. Ma is like to scold or to kind of say something horrible to somebody. But, you know, when you're first learning it, that is a huge barrier to entry. And the only way to do it is absolute focus and discipline over a long period of time. You know, I think it took me about like probably six months to get to crack that, but then eventually it does come naturally. So you just learn that, uh, you know, the rhythm is different where the, where your voice comes from is different. And then eventually you can train yourself to do it. Um, and then, once you've got it it kind of stays but of course you need to keep practicing it
0: it's kind of like you know when we're speaking our native tongue let's say our tongue and our our, our cavity inside of our our mouth is all trained in breakdancing and now we're asked to perform ballet and so it's <laughs> you yeah. know and so it's it's a it's a, almost a mechanical and a, a muscle retraining yeah, because it, it has is. to go into a completely different genre of of how you operate and make sound
1: yeah, and it's funny. I I remember at the time when I was learning really intensively. Actually, it really hurts. Your 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 the muscles in your mouth ache because they're doing stuff that you know they're not used to doing. So um, yeah. yeah, So it's it takes a long time to get that right.
0: Oh, so last question. Maybe let's touch on three to five examples of recent language trends, hot phrases, stuff that's you know really fascinating to me that you're doing. And, you know, how those are reflecting back on China's culture, economy, or, you know, what's hot off the presses or, or recent kind of trends on social.
1: Uh, obviously, I, I could come up with lots of examples. I'm going to start with one event, which has a number of different examples. And then I've got a couple of others as well, if um, uh, if uh, if you like. So uh, the event was something that we wrote about, I think, three or four weeks ago now. So uh, there was a big uh like coming out of people in Shanghai during uh, Halloween. Well, actually kind of through the week of Halloween. Uh, in Chinese, Halloween is Jie, so 10,000 Spirits Festival, uh, which actually is more like uh, All Saints Day translation in English, which is obviously, I think it's the day before Halloween or the day after. Um, but anyway, uh, this was this turned out to be a really cool... Thing to watch. I mean, the challenge is that I'm I'm watching from afar, so it's really hard to really get a feel of what's happening on the ground. But certainly from through my observations through social media and how it was being discussed in China was that there were just a real mix of very uh, interesting historical references, very modern contemporary references. You know, memes, obviously um, uh, links to COVID as well. So just a few examples. Um, there was one quite big, uh, well, quite kind of widely circulated, uh, costume. This guy was wearing a, um, you know, uh, Li Jiachi, the, uh, you know, the lipstick King of China. So big, uh, online, uh, live stream influencer. So recently he had a reputational, uh, disaster in China where he criticized in his live stream room, uh, one of his fans that were asked, that was basically questioning the price of, I think it was an eyebrow pencil. And he just literally- I know top, this one. Yeah, literally on the top, top of his head, he said, which means, you know, what do you mean it's expensive? You know, you need to work harder. You know, Or something like that. Uh, anyway, this, this kind of blew up on social media. Uh, it was massive criticism of him, him online. And the meme that came out of that were, was the was the phrase nali nali 哪里, which means like what do you mean guila expensive but uh it the it was a pun or a play on words on his name li jiaqi so instead of li as in nali it was li as in li jiaqi so the meme was nali guela. and so now in if if you if you talk to anyone in china and you say nali you'll know that that is basically a metaphor for, uh, you know, this kind of influencer type person criticizing, you know, normal working people in China. They don't have enough money, and they're not working hard enough. Anyway, there was there was one guy who's wearing a costume with a Li mask and a T-shirt saying Nali Guala. So, you know, if you've not been following events in China over the last month prior to Halloween, you wouldn't know what that meant. You know, so that that's an example of like a really new. On-trend phrase that was in in the kind of imagery of of this Halloween uh, celebration. Another good one. So uh, Lu Xun, <clears throat> the uh, 20th century, uh, you know, he's described as the giant of uh, modern Chinese literature. So um, there's a number of very famous works of his: um, uh, Diary of a Madman, Kuang Ren日记. Uh, is one, uh, another one is Kong Yiji, uh, which, and they're they're kind of short stories. And as from a language learning point of view, they're, they're not super long and they're kind of, it's, it's not like super challenging to get through them all. So, but what's interesting is that, um, those works are so important now in China Um, and kids are taught about them at school so they're kind of you know uh, approved literature so it's you know people are taught about this and they're taught that Lu Xun uh, is good because his works are all about criticizing uh, the kind of old feudal system which of course uh, is uh, you know looking at at it from a modern context That, that of course is you know China has come out of that feudal time and it's still seen as you know bad but Some of the things that Lu Xun said are now used critically of modern China. So one of his very famous quotes is um, 学一救不了中国人 So learning medicine will not save the Chinese people, uh, which is something that he said when he decided to go into writing because his father was a doctor and he would have followed on in his father's footsteps and learned medicine. But he said that learning medicine will not save the Chinese people. So... He wanted to do that through his words. But then, you know, that again was a meme uh, in and around this Shanghai Halloween kind of massive out. Uh, because it's like it was just streets full of people, all with these crazy costumes. But then there was just, a, you know, a handful of ones that were just really interesting. And that was one. So a guy dressed as Lu Shun with like a, a kind of a placard that said, So it's basically a subtle critique of. Life as a young person in China now, you know, it's kind of taking the same message, but turning it round and using it critically uh, of you know that person's you know kind of the experience of what it is like to be young in China now, which is uh, you know it it is challenging. So that that was another one. Um, obviously, there were da bai, so big whites, uh, a reference to COVID, of course. <laughs> Um <clears throat> let me think were there any were there, yeah so the, the, those were the those are the ones that kind of stood out to me when we when we wrote about that um, another good one um, from a bit earlier in this year and again this is one way in which the language can be really creative creatively used but very hard to understand yu gong huan Dai. so the old man yu can't pay his mortgage. Yu Gong Huan Dai. So, like, basically, that is from an idiom called Yu Gong Yi So, the basically Yu so Yu Gong Yi is a is a story. Uh, it's an idiom. The backstory is this old man. His name was Yu. Uh, wanted to move a mountain because he didn't like how the mountain was ruining the view of you know, where he lived. So he decided that he was going to dig up the mountain day in, day out, you know, shovel by shovel. He was going to move the mountain. Of course, that's completely impossible. Um, so everyone with a with a high school education in China knows that yugong yishan is an idiom about working hard. And no matter what, no matter how difficult the task is, I'm going to work hard. Yugong yishan, the Um, But, it, early this year, a bank i can't remember where in China but there was a provincial bank <clears throat> that announced that uh, a mortgage policy to basically allow uh old kind of parents of kids that had grown up to be guarantors of their mortgage application so in other words, passing on the debt to the generation above so in other words you're being kind of mortgaged to death. Uh, and so this, this new idiom was invented around that story, huan dan, basically say that, you know, uh, kind of I'm mortgaged into my death kind of thing. Um, so that, that's another good example of a word, of a phrase that's invented out of an old one, but you need to know the old, the old story. Uh, more recently, again, it was a, um, a kind of, uh, I think it was an idiom used by Mao, for example, as, you know, part of the kind of the rhetoric around working hard and all that kind of stuff uh, during, you know, again, during the 60s and 70s. But now it's it's turned into a completely different idiom, uh, criticizing this kind of crazy policy of uh, allowing people that are 60 and above essentially to take out mortgages to help their kids buy houses. So I think that that's another good one but again you, you if you don't know the news story then you just don't know that but then it's now these things become memes or like social media slang words that generally are known across society and then they become almost like standard use so you know going back to the first example naliguela would now be something that's just used in a general situation, criticizing, you know, how products are too expensive in China, especially through live streams. Yu Gong Dai again can be, you know, kind of mortgaged to death. Can be something that people generally know about in China, and then can be used in a more, more kind of general situation. So, those are a few that I can come that I, that I can uh, come up with. I mean. Um, the, I, so actually, going, going back to the Shanghai Halloween thing, another good costume I saw was um, a, a combination of the Chinese stock market stock board, so, so uh, this guy kind of dressed up with a like a stock, more, stock market kind of share price board thing, holding a handful of garlic chives. Can you guess what that means? Yeah, so it's a ghoul. So China's stock market Agul Gujil Thai So basically China's stock markets a Gujiil is a slang word for basically kind of ripping off customers or ripping off consumers and it started in the financial markets years ago. It's now more generally used but you know the implication was China's stock markets are a complete ripoff and they're just ripping off kind of uh, individual investors so Agul Gujiil tai. So it's this kind of so it's just just this mix uh, that I find really cool is, is this kind of mix of contemporary culture and how the language then fits into that, you know. So yeah, those are a few examples. I don't know if you've if that hits the mark.
0: That's cool, though. I mean, I it makes several points at how creative they are. It's not like it's not like I have to understand. Oh, somebody, you know, some kid might say, "Yeah, I like your drip." And I have to now go and ask my twelve-year-old what What did this kid mean when he said he likes my dread? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so it just lacks creativity compared to I think what happens in, in China. They're much more poetic, uh, I, I think, and deep with what they come up with, and it has all these references. And I think it it has so much more layers of meaning when it when it when it comes out. But yes, if you don't understand the references and kind of where it came from. Then it certainly wouldn't make sense. I think those layers would be lost on you. Yeah. Um, if you yeah, just completely. didn't. Yeah. And you could probably understand it and then you could probably reuse it, but you probably still wouldn't really, really get it and use it as smartly as, as they probably are in the right mm. positioning of, of mm. commentary or what have you. So, okay. Well, uh, Andrew, I, I think last question is: you know, where do people go? to Sign up and, and, and get your newsletter and, and be able to absorb your content?
1: Sure. So it, it's a free newsletter. So, you know, there's no reason why uh, anyone shouldn't sign up. And it's um, if you just search, uh, so it's on Substack, uh, you know, the newsletter publishing platform. But if you just search, uh, if you just Google uh, Slow Chinese, uh, Andrew, you'll find it. Um, so it's slowchinese.net uh and then there's a very simple um subscribe page uh also i'm on twitter as well and linkedin so those are the main places that you would find me andrew methven
0: author of the slow chinese newsletter thank you very very much for coming on the show today we really appreciate your time
1: thanks so much Todd. it's great to uh, be here and uh, yeah talk about talk about the newsletter and just the language in general
0: we enjoyed having you. It was a unique podcast for us. So thank you for that. Um, Reminder for everybody listening to us on the podcast, don't forget to go and check out the YouTube channel as well over at WPIC's YouTube uh, page and channel over there. We've got YouTube shorts and a lot of other content for you as well. And then you'll be able to see Andrew and I in all our glory here. But for me and everybody at The Negotiation and for Andrew, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia.